When it comes to the neuroscience of it, I guess we're talking about what is emotional intelligence from the perspective of certain areas in the brain. And it's not just one part of the brain, it's a whole mixture of actually maybe even three different systems. One of the emotions um, when you lose something uh, is to not try and do it again. You have a very visceral response to not want to make those same mistakes again. So actually emotion is very, very important in decision making. It's very true that the right hemisphere is much more important for creativity, for emotional intelligence. It's by no means the sort of airy-fairy entity that it was often thought to be. It's in fact our ultimate guide to reality. And that means both everyday reality and the sort of deeper Um, metaphysical and spiritual reality. I was advised by all my colleagues, you know, don't ruin a promising career by going into this area. But the questions just seem to me much too important and interesting. And there are undeniable, large, measurable differences in how they work and even their structure. Research shows that the quality of your preparation has an effect on the quality of your incubation, which has an effect on your eureka moment. So it's not good enough to go and sit underneath a tree without having done the work. I see consciousness and matter as evolving together. And in fact, ultimately, again, rather as the left and right hemisphere are both needed, one is primary. The right hemisphere is the one that sort of grounds everything and brings it together at the, the end of the process. Consciousness is the primary thing and it is the stuff of the universe and matter is an emanation of consciousness i believe i'm arguing that in a book i'm writing now so how do you get conscious feeling um and it's from the brain's interpretation of bodily states which are caused again by emotional events so you see that it's a very non-linear thing here it is an assumption that for example we understand matter we don't understand matter the more we know about matter the more complex it becomes yes. the more like a mental phenomenon it becomes so trying to use matter as a primary and saying that consciousness is somehow oozed out of the brain like urine out of the bladder is really not a very rational way of thinking the thing though that i think gives me hope is that human beings are resourceful flexible imaginative and essentially unpredictable and there must have been points in the past when people thought well it's all up you know yeah. and it wasn't because human beings reacted against it music from the underground only on Badger Radio that's right it's Badger Radio New act, ladies and gentlemen, and a new track, their second single. This is Ho Fu with Passenger. Sacred nights, oh, what tears we cried. Cards were on the table, shed all when we were able. Souls danced around the room, hearts flooded into bloom. Great inner peace consumed, forever a passenger to your love.
Hello there, fellow creatures of Earth of every colour and creed, and welcome back to Totem. I hope that for many of you this is becoming a regular thing, but for those of you who may be new to Badger Radio and to the Artful Badger, this is the show that brings you not only the best new releases from left-field music across the globe, but it also makes a scratch on the surface of some of the most important themes and practices of the current zeitgeist that I think are really relevant to evolving ourselves and our communities into the next era. And my, things are changing fast, aren't they? So we're aiming to take all the scientific research and the practices and unpack them for you briefly and in layman's terms so we can get a clear idea of what it's all about and perhaps find an angle to approach bringing these things into our lives, um, obviously after we find what it is that works for us. So I'm really excited about today's show, as it's all about one of the most often used buzzwords of the day, emotional intelligence. So we're going to be finding out what all the hullabaloo has been about, and if it's been justified. And as usual, we'll leave nothing to chance and speculation, and we're going to speak directly to the specialists who do this stuff for a living. So we're going to speak to neuroscientist and musician Shama Raman uh, to find out if we really can quantify such a thing as emotion and how it compares to the more traditional understanding of intelligence as a rational IQ-style function. Crucially, we'll be finding out from her if we can even separate the two in terms of both the location in the brain and what we actually use them for. And I'll be asking her all about her research uh, and about intuition, creativity and flow, another buzzword at the moment, and what she's discovered using even more advanced tools of neuroscientific research and how she's been including them in her art and, and even developing them as tools for, for average people like you and me uh, to go up to use in our everyday lives. And it's going to be a huge honour to speak to our second guest, celebrated author and highly experienced uh, psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist. Uh, we're going to be speak to him about his research into the left and the right brain, which uh, many of you will have heard of, uh, to try and correct some of our misconceptions about the place of emotional intelligence in the left and or the right hemispheres of the brain, a subject that seems to have entered on a mass scale into folklore in a totally black and white way and, and potentially uh, quite damagingly. I'll be asking Ian if we'll ever emerge from our entrenchment into the cold and reductionist age of, re of reason, and if the recent popularity of emotional intelligence is something to be encouraged and is, is cause for hope. And then we'll be finishing up by navel-gazing uh, more generally about the vast implications of the ever-deepening understanding of the brain of emotion and consciousness itself and what this means for the future of our species. I, I just cannot wait to get into this um, uh, with, with Ian and Sharma. So today, Totem is really asking two key questions. What is emotional intelligence? And how important is it to redressing the balance in a Western world dominated by reductionist materialism? Once again, Today we've got an extraordinary mix of new tracks from amazing talents and once again it's as if by synchronicity that the tracks that have caught my attention uh, over the last few months seem to have a deep emotional verve and, and truth to them. Um, I continue to be desperately in love with how diverse 
the styles of music that we get to work with at the Art for Badger are and how every show uh, that we bring to you on Totem is just so different. So thanks to all of you listeners and to all the artists for buying into our offbeat vision. And if you like that festival style of diversity, keep an eye out for our next uh, Love Affairs DJ mix as finally I will be putting out one of my own mixes uh, on Badger Radio. So eight years of Badger Radio, 20 years of DJing across countless genres and at every type of event you can possibly imagine. And I have never published a mix online. Shame on me, Dirty Monkey. Keep your ears peeled as it's going to be mostly retro classic. Uh, classics, my, my favorite fare when it comes to DJing, you know, from sort of Bowie and, and Led Zepp through to sort of random uh, remixes and 50 Swing. Um, and because you're such, we're such a niche podcast and you're such a niche bunch of listeners, it's really important that if you enjoy the show, that you, you help me get it out to more like minds like yourselves. So please um, share this on your profiles. Do me that massive favor of following the link in the comments um, to review us on iTunes. It sounds silly, but you cannot imagine just how much those five-star reviews help the algorithms to find us and, and push the ideas to, and the new tracks out to more like minds. We're quite new on iTunes, so until we reach the threshold to to get a general rating, we are still grassroots and under the radar. So thanks in advance for all that great grassroots support uh, proper. So you've just heard a new track from the Leicester-based solo artist Ho Fu, a.k.a. Niall Barrow. Great quality recording. Congratulations, Niall. Great job. I've got to confess, it felt really quite strange not having a massive big horns track to open uh, Totem Badger style. But hey, there was a sax, and uh, it's the Emotional Intelligence episode, so we can, for one episode, go without our traditional horns explosion, right? So now, after all the anticipation, hugely experienced rocker turned sound bath voice and Qigong facilitator Tallulah Rendell has finally released her new album, The Liminal, that we've been waiting for so, so keenly. Uh, so The Liminal came out quite recently on the 5th of April, and the video for the single, Radiate, uh, features phenomenal dancer and colleague Lucy Ridley. Uh, you must check out Lucy's work. Uh, she is really quite an extraordinary artist, and she features on this new video from Tallulah. So check the show notes to see the video. The tour is still ongoing. So please check tolularandom.com if you want to see this this live. The live show, of course, involves some extraordinary sound bath work, which she is, of course, known for um, during her workshops. And this is going to be taking place all across Britain. So if you're kind of new to sound healing and sound baths, highly recommend uh, popping down to one of Toluda's concerts for this liminal release. But now we're going to hear uh, one of the newly released tracks on the liminal. Uh, not radiate. Uh, this is rest in the shadows. So tenderly, oh, you touch me. 
breath by breath I move by move. Currently I can't trust in you. And as you hold me close and draw me in, time suspends its mortal spoon. And there's stillness all in Down through eternity, and as we open out to hearts born wild and free in this life to.
uh, Tilly Randall never fails to surprise me after 20 years of being her fan. So let's get into this. Going back at least 10 years, I started hearing the term emotional intelligence being bantered around more and more in newspaper articles, interviews, uh, and online. As if it was sort of the missing piece to optimizing the slowly improving overall intelligence of the general public, while also improving satisfaction, well-being, and social balance. So without knowing why, my ears always pricked up and I began to listen intently. And the very term seemed to speak to me um, and speak to my deep hell prejudice that Western post-enlightenment thinking was heavily skewed towards what felt like quite a cold and heartless reductionist worldview and that our emotions and and spirit along with our communities and our ecosystems were slowly sort of shriveling and and abandoning all hope of of redressing this balance. Now this is a prejudice uh, and I hope I'll understand better by the end of today's show this particular prejudice my profound respect and passion for the achievements and, and, and service of the scientific method is in such contrast to my anger with the you can't prove it, so it can't be true reductionist approach. So I secretly hope, or at least hoped, that the idea of emotional intelligence might offer reductionists a slightly less close-minded approach um, to undiscovered truths that we till now have merely lacked the tools to measure and, and theorize about correctly. We'll find out if my naivety will once again be beaten to a pulp after we speak to the specialists that, uh, that, that actually know about this stuff properly. So what exactly is emotional intelligence? So the modern understanding um, of this particular concept and, and the term was first coined in a 1964 paper by Michael Beldock, signaling the start of a deep questioning of traditional cognitive psychology by academia that seemed to focus on the rational. An important further development came in 1983 with Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, as he proposed that IQ was an insufficient measure of cognitive ability and that a complete model needed to include inter and intra personal intelligence too. Um, the idea of an emotional quotient, quotient or EQ uh, to measure it like EQ was then proposed in 1987 by Keith Beasley in Mensa magazine. But that's all academia. Um, the term took 30 years to get mainstream traction and then entered common parlance in a big storm in 1995 when New York Times science journalist and author Jonathan Goldman picked up the research of John Mayer, now at the University of New Hampshire, and Yale's Peter Salavoy, Salavey, uh, I'm not sure if I've got the pronunciation right there, and he wrote uh, a popular science book called Emotional Intelligence. Uh, his potentially oversimplified pop science version of theirs and, and other psychology papers instantly became a bestseller. Uh, it was as if the public had been longing for something like that and the concept flew around the world being picked up by management consultants, um, education, czars and, and self-help gurus as well. So let's have a look at that. Goldman's synthesis of both the trait and the ability 
models of emotional intelligence were presented in four relevant areas. He broke it down like this. The first is self-awareness, i.e. knowing what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And this, of course, helps us hone our intuition and thus our decision-making. And it functions as what Goleman calls a moral compass for how we react to the various situations we're presented with. The second is self-management, skillfully not named self-control, as that stinks of repression, but it's not far off. This, this is the skill to handle our negative emotions so they don't thwart our intentions, whilst remaining aware of them so that we learn from, from what they highlight. At the same time, it is also the skill to handle our positive emotions, using them to, to generate enthusiasm and passion to, to, yeah, to powerfully motivate our, our actions. Third is empathy, which is, of course, knowing what other people are feeling and why. And the fourth kind of puts them all together. It's the ability to, to, to form healthy relationship as we discover and develop what he calls social skills. So that's really about sort of putting all of it together in a framework of relationship. So all of this sounded absolutely fantastic, ticked all the boxes, and the idea seemed to satisfy the public's desperation to sort of de-robotize human interaction and the enthusiasm of the book's first reception by the public just led to a host of research organizations forming like the the EI Institute, CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, and the STEP Institute, S-T-E-P Institute, developing education, business, and self-improvement models, and really quite fast rolling them out across the world. Like I say, it was as if they'd been waiting for this. Goldman even argued that this could be learned by anyone at any stage of their life due to neuroplasticity, uh, which I'm sure you guys all know, another buzzword, which is the ability to retrain your neural pathways through the repetition of actions. So, so far, so good. However, well, Goleman and many of these organizations began to quote statistics from the pilot programs in schools that claim that antisocial behavior dropped by 10%, pro-social behavior raised by 10%, and crucially, that cognitive and academic performance increased by 10%. This type of outcome was so desirable amongst politicians, schools, and, and teachers that few question the methods of teaching EI, nor the quality of the studies made to assess it. And so in 2002, keen to win the social progress vote, the Labour government of UK rolled it out in primary schools in Britain too, naming it SEAL, Social and Emotional Aspects of Learning. The program was so popular with teachers and pupils that by 2007, it was also moved into secondary schools. And over the following years, studies um, made it clear that there was little hard evidence uh, for any improvement in well-being and academic results in the schools. So the new Conservative government refused to fund it any further, stopping short of actually canning it altogether as teachers and students were just loving it. But in a scathing report in 2011, BBC journalist Fran Abrahams uh, questioned deeply the lack of evidence-based claims, the, uh, quote, touchy-feely methods, and the risk of encouraging, uh, quote, introspective therapy-driven culture, where we're all so focused on our feelings that we end up feeling sad just because we're thinking about it all the time, unquote. 
However, the report did conclude that given positive feedback from teachers and students, and despite the lack of hard evidence, it's, it's likely that the principle of teaching emotional intelligence is worthy. Just that the methods of teaching and the measuring need to be, need to be developed. It's worth mentioning here that many of these organizations and education programs were also drawing on the emotional resilience model developed by one of the fathers of positive psychology, Martin Seligman. And trials of this in UK had better measured results than SEAL. And he basically uses the stoic Socratic method of cognitive psychology and focuses on self-management, um, the self-management aspect, developing what he called three pillars. The first is keeping your cool, uh, which involves not taking things personally, not getting deflated by setbacks and, and disconnecting from negative feelings that aren't your own. Um, the second pillar is self-calming, <laughs> which includes working through emotion as fast as possible, preempting stress and anxiety and not brooding on things for a long time, but letting go fast. And the third is cultivating positive emotions. Uh, which involves things like doing what you love, getting into nature, seeing friends, finding ways to laugh at challenges, um, dwelling on your positive emotions rather than your negative emotions. Seligman's work um, has helped thousands of people worldwide, so it's, it's trialed and tested, um, unlike um, Goldman's model. The first two pillars, keeping your cool and self-calming, however, from my point of view, and, and also it has been criticized for advocating repression and an undervaluing of the emotions uh, in the workplace as if they're sort of an inconvenient byproduct of life uh, rather than being a valuable resource for, for cognition and for learning. And I tend to agree with those criticisms. Um, the third pillar, however, cultivating positive emotions, has been proved over and over again in psychology as a useful mindfulness technique as neuroplasticity clearly shows that we can train our thought patterns to become habitual, so moving out of negative, destructive thought patterns. Um, and that's just merely a matter of practice and repetition, as I say, tried and tested. So that gives you a bit of history. I should mention now that, that this podcast isn't really about the application of such methodologies. It, it's more about how the brain works and the cultural context in which we see such a longing for this, this type of thinking. But I think it's important to have a basic background on how the idea has been developed uh, and applied before we get into this with our guest today. I think the most important thing to bear in mind from the background um, is just how hard it is to transfer these sound concepts into effective methodologies and just, just how hard it is to measure them um, in people, both, both, both as traits um, and as, as they're developed as, as potential skills that we, we can either develop or, or, or we may just have. Yeah, just a word on measurement. Yeah, common, common criticism of their measurement have been uh, a few key points. That it measures conformity, not ability. This comes back to the repression point. Um, and that's really quite useful if you're creating unquestioning workers and also consumers. So I think that's a valid cr criticism really there, just talking about really, aren't you just measuring their ability to stick to the, you know, toe the line and fall into place? Um, another criticism that it measures the knowledge of emotions uh, without necessarily knowing what to do with that knowledge, uh, which I think is quite interesting, the difference between awareness 
and the ability to to know what to do with awareness uh, although awareness is a huge step in the right direction and perhaps most importantly self-reporting uh, is also criticized so the self-reporting of the subject's emotion is is highly susceptible to bias obviously um, overall there's a, a general sense of criticism of the idea that emotionally intelligent leaders and workers have an advantage it's criticized as being over enthusiastic suggesting that such workers may actually lack the grit uh, to make key decisions and perform key functions in an often heartless dog-eat-dog world. But for me, this criticism mirrors perfectly the desperate need for measures of this kind to begin changing this, this often heartless communal approach that we have to life and to the planet and to work and, and business that we really do rely on. Um, but we'll be coming back to the consequences of that when we talk to Ian McGilchrist uh, about the future of the species. So despite all that criticism from the establishment, I think there's a lot to defend in the vocal enthusiasm of the employees, the teachers and the pu pupils who, who seem to have been crying out for these types of tools in their daily lives at work and at school. Okay, if we can't measure it correctly yet, I see that that's scientifically problematic especially when it comes to signing off funding, you know, vast amounts of government funding for these programs. But surely, um, following the feedback of the students and the teachers and the employees, surely we can trust our hearts over our heads on something that, in short, is about getting the heart back into the picture, rebalancing the dominance of the head. But again, perhaps I'm just being naive. So until we speak to these specialists, I... I really can't be sure, and I, and I wouldn't want to put myself on the line as a as a, um, a non-professional. So before we find out if this can really be a useful concept at all, let's hear some more music um, and get the badger news, and then we'll be speaking to our extraordinary guests, hopefully uh, bashing naivety and confusion on this subject out of the picture forever. Badger! Get the furlicious. With Badger Radio. Extraordinary preview next up of Irish multi-instrumentalist Shunya's new track, uh, The Clay and the Sculpture. Lyrical, poetic, catchy, yet totally experimental. Uh, Shunya will be releasing this on his own label around the 25th of May. So check his band camp in a few months if you want to get this single. As I say, this is Shunya with the clay and the sculpture.
but now it is time for the Badger News. So the Artful Badger are back uh, at Mandrea Festival again this year in the Dolomites above Lake Garda. Um, absolutely stunning location. It's change date this time to the 11th to the 14th of July. Um, so that may work better for those of you who've been busy in mid-August up until now. Uh, we can highly recommend this really, really cute grassroots festival. It's nestled in among, amongst the cliff faces uh, and the, the lakes high up in the mountains. So to get the sense of the programming and the vibe, do go back to my intense uh, festival podcast all about the Mandrea Festival from 2016. We'll be back there bringing on the breakfast boogie. So I don't know about you lot, but I am missing badger parties. But the Artful Badger's managing director and party guru, Aoife Van Linden Toll, uh, has just been too busy um, to organise a good stomp for us recently. And fair enough, um, her contemporary art career focused around the use of explosives in her art has just been going from strength to strength including a tour to Australia an artist residency with the European Space Agency live explosions uh, in Dublin to celebrate the Dublin Science Gallery's 10th anniversary and as vice chair of the International Astronautical Federation Committee for the cultural utilization of space uh, she's been connecting cultural organisations with space organisations to develop a way in which outer space can be used for culture. Represent. Um, and they've even been including brainstorming a settlement on Mars. How awesome is that? So despite our longing for more Badger Parties, for now we're just going to have to be content with our few festival experience, uh, appearances and the odd workshop this summer and, and, and to come. And just be happy in the knowledge that uh, Aoife is doing this incredible work. And you can also check that out on her website. And she's written an article about it if you're curious about this culture and space theme in, in Room Magazine, which is linked in the show notes below. Aoife, a massive shout out to you from all your devoted crew at the Alpha Badger. And I'm sure all of the punters who, like us, are missing your parties. We are so proud of everything that you're doing and achieving. And we can definitely hold fire, no pun intended, till we can badger party to the max again with you. So big love, Aoife. Next up, a massive shout out to Ben Zevin Crane, a.k.a. the Mojo Filter. Uh, long-term collaborator and friend, thank you for inviting us to get involved in the new healing electronic music stage in the woods at Noisley Festival called The Nook that he's programming um, again I've been longing to come to this festival for years as its community and success has grown and I'm gutted that Mandrea is that same weekend um, the 11th to the 15th of July so you've got a choice of brilliant stuff uh, noisily if you're staying in UK and, and Mandrea if you fancy getting out of the country and coming to, to see us up in the mountains um, but it does mean we won't be able to come and offer our dance journeys there on the nook uh, at Noisily perhaps next year I'll keep you beauties informed but I can highly recommend this festival uh, so many friends and colleagues are fans it's a beautiful site um, all the best electronic music uh, of the world um, always including really really interesting artists each year 
and also really, really creative, creative uh, decor design, which, as you know, if you follow my intense uh, festival specials, I, I think is a very, very important part of, of effective festivals. So check the show notes uh, for a link if you're curious. There's even a, a link to a special mix from Mojo Filter to celebrate the, the creation of this new stage. The And last but not least, Badger Dance collaborators, Bristol-based dance company Impermanence Dance, have made an exciting new dance film which uh, reimagines Vernon Lee's 1913 text, The Ballet of the Nation, a fascinating idea in which war is imagined as a diabolical dance, choreographed by Satan and rehearsed by ballet master Death. So produced by Permanence Dance and directed by Rosanna Anderson and Joshua Bentoven, this 50-minute Arse House production incorporates original dialogue uh, inspired from, from Lee's text among intricate and stylized dance pieces, sort of reminding me of a kind of weird marriage between sort of Greenaway and, and Pina Bausch. Really, really interesting um, foray into, into dance film there. And it's narrated by Billy Zane, Hollywood superstar, um, and I'm, I'm a great fan of Zane. So do check those show notes if you want to watch that. There's a link to the film there. And that was The Badger News. So it is time to speak to uh, the first of our very special guests today, uh, neuroscientist and musician Shama Raman. Shama was born in the United Arab Emirates to Bangladeshi parents, and she studied molecular biology and then went on to get a PhD in neuroscience, specializing in the neuroscientific systems of musical creativity. She's a sitarist and singer-songwriter, and she's even an actress too. She's collaborated with a vast array of organizations, including Asian Dub Foundation, State of Bengal, the Antarctic Biennale, and she also works to promote artists. She's the founder of Jugular Productions, which is an art science creative agency, and NeuroCreate, uh, using a mixture of AI and neuroscience to produce digital platforms that enable you to enter creative flow. So as you can hear, she's had an extraordinarily diverse career, so far to say the least, uh, more detail of which we're about to discover. Sharma, welcome to Badger Radio, and thanks so much for taking the time out to be with us. How are you? I'm good, and thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much for, for, for making the time. You know, having access to your kind of knowledge is, is really great for us, uh, us curious folk out there. And I think the people are really going <laughs> really to love this interview. So let's get started, Sharma. Um, in the introduction, I spoke a little bit about Daniel Goleman's popular book, Emotional Intelligence, and that really took the word out of the academia and into the mainstream. And it's become so popular now uh, that it's part of education programs, employment criteria, and even self-help models. But how does neuroscience define and measure emotional intelligence? Well, um, emotional intelligence um is a parallel term to something that other people have also called EQ. And so the emotional quotient is actually a psychometric test. And generally it measures a, a few different sort of properties about self-awareness, um, self-control, level of empathy, how you affect or you know control your thoughts, how you manage change, how you don't dwell on the past, what your interrelational 
statuses are, how you pay attention. So these are all sort of more psychometric tests, which could be a combination of self-reported or asking others and also testing your skills in these areas. And there doesn't seem to be any consensus on, you know, one particular measurement uh, that's out there that's better than the other. So um, jury's a little bit out on that. When it comes to the neuroscience of it, I guess we're talking about what is emotional intelligence from the perspective of certain areas in the brain. And it's not just one part of the brain. It's a whole mixture of actually maybe even three different systems. So one of the system is called the limbic system, which I think a few people have heard about. It's a mammalian part um, in terms of evolution. Primordial, isn't it? Very ancient. It's, it's very ancient, but it's not as ancient as uh, the reptilian one, actually. So that's mm. even further down. And then we have the prefrontal or neocortex, um, which is the most evolutionarily new part of it. And so in the limbic system, which a lot of people might actually recognize as in common parlance is often related to, say, emotion centers. But it's got a whole bunch of different areas, um, including the hippocampus, which is to do with your memory, the mm. amygdala, which is the sort of fight or flight response of things, yeah. the basal ganglia, which are like your habits, the thalamus, which actually modulates all of your sensory inputs and the hypothalamus, and also the anterior cingulate, which we're actually going to come back to yeah. in a bit. And that's like a secretary part of things where it actually integrates different motoric and emotional communications together. And then you have the prefrontal cortex, which has a lot more of the decision-making things involved in here, like dorsolateral, ventromedial. Um, and then I'm talking about the reptilian part, which is, say, your brainstem um, and your cerebellum, more related to, like, movement. So actually what's interesting here is how it seems to be an integration of a lot of different things um, mm. to help you make decisions, right? And this seems, from my research, that neuroscience has essentially realized that there is not such a clear separation between rational intelligence and emotional intelligence as was previously thought when the the first experiment started to be done. Is that in fact the case or is it not quite so clear? Um, I think, you know, certainly what we think about as rational intelligence is all sort of our ability to plan or analyze or, you know, to model past and future scenarios, um, problem solve, that sort of thing. Um, but actually, it's also definitely modulated by our emotions about something. So, you know, you're, a decision um, is very much modulated by how you feel about something, actually. And I think there was a, a study done where... Um, uh, a person actually had a, a, an accident and uh, they ended up not being able to have any emotional affect or response to things. And they got them to play games of poker uh, versus those who hadn't lost this ability. And they thought that perhaps that this person would actually do much better in these games. But actually game after game, he, he lost, mm. which is quite interesting because one of the emotions um, when you lose something uh, is to not try and do it again. You have a very visceral response to not want to make those same mistakes again. So actually emotion is very, very important in decision making. And decision making is what a lot of people think is very rational. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that there's been an imbalance, let's say, since the start of the Age of Reason, the Enlightenment, let's say the last 150, 200 years, do you think there's been an imbalance following this kind of huge burst of, of scientific method and industrialization towards this very analytical thinking Um, and if so what have been the consequences to our society do you think um so i think we've you know because of the industrial revolution quite notable in this country 
people have definitely had a, a, a very modular way of uh, breaking down disciplines um, and thinking about things within silos. And that's been really, really good for the time that it was at because people were able to excel um, in very specialist ways. But I think that that's quite limiting if you look at it, you know, in the in the overall picture, but because things are very interconnected with each other, disciplines are connected with each other. Uh, we saw this in the Renaissance, why that was also a burst of very incredible, both intellectual, emotional and artistic prowess, right? Mm. And I think that actually for us to move forward, it's 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 bringing all these different areas together. And I think that's beginning to happen again through the advent of tech as well. Um, possibly these sort of like borders are being broken down. And so, you know, even in my own work, I've been looking a lot at art science and how these methodologies sort of combine together. I can't wait to, to talk about that. We'll talk about that just in a, in a short moment. But just to be clear then, in your opinion, do you think that we have, in since the sort of emotional intelligence fashion has, has come back since the 90s, do you think we've seen a redress of, of the balance and that people are coming back to a slightly more integrated, broader emotionally sensitive uh, emotionally empathetic kind of approach or do you think that actually we're, we're getting more and more entrenched in this age of reason i mean actually like over the last couple of years i've entered the startup world for example and you know looking more and more at business systems and you know and one thing that gets drummed into you um is actually, it may not even be the idea or the patents or the tech or whatever it is that you're trying to follow. It's it's actually starts from the team. And those, you know, it's the people and how they get on mm -hmm. um, that can actually make the whole thing go forward. And I come from a complex systems background and it's quite heartening to see how actually even bigger organizations are looking at how the top-down way of looking at things isn't really working anymore. It's this sort of bottom-up approach, which means mm. it's all about the individual employees and how they can contribute to something to, mm. to make it a greater version than their individual components. And for that to happen, everybody needs to be much more self-aware, much more able to deal with each other. And so emotional intelligence definitely is quite a prominent skill to have there. Mm, I've certainly heard that this is very popular in the tech world, but I imagine you guys pretty much are at the, uh, the leading edge of this, so it might take a little while for the rest of us all to, to catch up, but I'm, I'm, that is very hopeful. Actually, also, it's very hopeful because um, I've been seeing a, a, a sort of a movement, uh, even in schools, of uh, doing meditation. Yeah. Um, as a, I, I don't know if it's a, you know, a compulsory thing, but the fact that like more and more children are able to get that skill. Yeah, I heard that mindfulness, you know? mindfulness is, is making its way into curricula. Yeah, yeah, I heard Absolutely. That. It's like a form of self-reflection and that self-reflection, well, it is a, form, it is a self-reflection, right? Absolutely. And that skill is, is very good towards the sort of interpersonal relationship. I think they're kind of seeing that being um, translated in how, how the kids are relating to each other. So... It is hopeful. Uh, that's that's really, really good yeah. news, isn't it? Well, listen, um, we're going to take a short break, but don't go away, people, because this track we're going to hear is actually from Sharma, and then we're going to keep talking to her. Uh, this is from her new album, The Truth Be Told. Um, it's a beautiful collection of songs uh, in her very, very diverse style, so spanning folk and jazz and Bengali sounds, even into swing and bossa nova, but right through to the other end, the sort of spoken word, a dubstep and, and all kinds of fun electronic stuff so you can probably guess which end of the spectrum uh, the badger's ear was drawn to so check this out guys this is city in the west
that was totally awesome. I must say, guys, it is uh, it is qu- a slightly more chilled album than that. That obviously was the most badgery one that I could find. So as we've just heard, Shai, you are also a musician and a songwriter as well as a neuroscientist. And I understand you've done some research into the brain activity involved in creativity. So in mm-hmm. your opinion, is creativity linked to emotional intelligence. What was your hypothesis for your PhD and and did it prove correct? Well, my hypothesis um, was based on connectionist theories, which by its name suggests that actually um, I expected the whole of the brain to come together um, in order to allow us to make something from nothing, essentially, whatever um, we might consider creativity to be. Yeah, hard thing to define, um, hard thing to define. yeah. Yeah. I very much was like, I wanted to go into this very exploratory. I was almost convinced that it was not going to be a modular thing. There's not one part of the brain that's related to it. And so with that quite open-minded foray, yeah, I think um, my hypothesis did prove correct. There's quite a few different parts of the brain that are involved. Um, So I found a signature brain pattern for peak creative performance. And you'd be interested to hear that one of them which is called the Broadman Area 32, um, <laughs> otherwise uh, otherwise known as the medial prefrontal cortex. It's actually um, a, a hub in the brain, and it's in the left part of the brain, uh, the area that I found at least. And it's an integration of, as I was mentioning earlier, of uh, both the motoric and the emotional communication. It helps maintain executive control, or in other words, decision-making, uh, involves conscious monitoring and adjustments. So it's a sort of, a wonderful combination of both what we're calling the the rational and the emotional. Hmm. Um, so, so to to sort of link it back, that's it's also known as part of the anterior cingulate, which we said was part of the limbic um, system. This other part, which is um, also known as the precuneus, I found when the right part of the brain, which is kind of at the back, and it's often related to altered states of consciousness, like anesthesia, weirdly, or sleep, and hmm. also this um, the state called hypnagogia, which is this sort of liminal space between sleep and wake. Yeah. And then v- very interesting as well, I was looking at two different types of creativity. I was looking at musicians, uh, both for their improvisational uh, abilities and also their ability to interpret a piece of music. More commonly, it's been known to be associated to say classical Western music and mm. say improvisation has been known to be associated more to say jazz improv, right? And one of the areas um, that comes up in classical interpretation is the insula, which is also known to be quite emotional, but specifically it's about error monitoring in this case, again, integrating emotionally linked response inhibition. And and what's very interesting, and you bring this up um, probably at some point, is William James. I don't know if you've heard about him, the sort of famous philosopher. No, no, no. Tell us. Yeah, he comes in with this whole emotional intelligence rhetoric or, you know, the the story behind it. But he's a philosopher, psychologist and physician from quite a while ago. And he actually hypothesized that the insula is sort of the the seat of embodied cognition. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is that it receives sensory input from the thalamus, which I was telling you about from the, you know, the limbic system again. It outputs, again, um, outputs into the limbic areas. The amygdala Mm -hmm. is involved. And so he um, considered it to be a very good explainer, say, of a subjective emotional experience. So how do you get conscious feeling? And it's from the brain's interpretation of bodily states, which are caused, again, by emotional events. So you see that it's a very nonlinear thing here. Yeah, they just keep feeding back into each other. It's just impossible to separate, it seems. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, what I was describing as a sort of peak creative performance is actually also linked to uh, this mental state called flow. So for when musicians are, you know, in this sort of particular creative uh, state, they're in flow or in the groove, you know, when athletes are in this state, um, it's called being in the zone. And it's actually um, a positive psychology term that was termed by a, a you know, father of positive psychology uh, called Sikhtim Mihai, who was trying to look at the sort of underlying processes for happiness, which again is emotion. And obviously happiness is something that's very subjective and, you know, it can vary from person to person, culture to culture, but he kind of found this sort of intense, enhanced peak performance state of mind, which he then coined flow. Ah, so he's the the creator of this, of this new buzzword, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And, you know, there are, it's not just, you know, say being in flow, like we, consider it in colloquial language, it has a number of different cognitive properties, one of which is um, enhancing your mental flexibility. So your ability to change strategy mm. and obviously therefore creativity to hold many different concepts in the, you know, in the same mental space. And it's the exact opposite of stress where you get very fixated on one way of doing something. It does definitely lead to the feelings of um, losing track of time, for example. Uh, people feel really engaged, highly self-motivated. Um, people really feel joyous. There's a sort of ecstatic um, And what about the brain waves? Are the brain waves quite similar to meditative states or are they more into high concentration kind of brain waves? Actually, they're different from both. And so um, flow uh, is another altered state of mind, uh, such as meditation. Meditation is not the same thing, but I would say that there are certain elements of meditation um, that could prepare you for flow, such as being able to uh, have a stiller mind and to have this sort of open monitoring. So it's kind of Um, the best of both worlds in this sense. Yeah. And so what's very interesting about flow is that it's different from focus as well, because you're not only able to see the little details, you're also able to put it in the broader context. So you have a a sort of simultaneous double attention going on. So in a weird way, yeah, it's I wouldn't necessarily say it's a mixture of the two, but it's somewhere in that continuum, you know. Fascinating. I want to come back to intuition for a moment. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's always seemed to me that intuition plays a large part in the visionary conception of ideas. So uh, new artworks, but but even more specifically to your field, you know, new scientific theories, for example, you know, the eureka moment, if you like, this, this sort of bang of, of kind of inspiration. And I personally feel that it's so important that it's pretty much like a sixth sense with a totally separate perceptive role to the other senses. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been accepted as a real brain process. Has it? Do you think it should be? Would there any be, be any application of researching this? And, and how would you test for it? Um, if you may, I'm going to unpick what you mean by intuition here. <laughs> yeah, it's a wide term, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Eureka, for example, and I'm going to bring it back to creative uh, processes. So there was um, um, a person called Wallace, uh, who about 100 years ago went and interviewed like hundreds of eminent creatives at that point. And actually creative not only meant fine artist and musician and maybe architect, it also meant uh, chemists and mathematicians. Mm. And um, he wanted to know what was their secret, essentially. How did they have this eureka moment, like you mentioned? And he actually uh, broke that process down. He found that there was like a commonality um, in four stages. 
Um, and the first stage is preparation, where you have a broad idea, maybe an inkling, a niggling feeling even, you know, in terms of which direction you wanted to sort of explore something. And in this, in this stage, you basically do a lot of research. You fill your brain with a lot of information. You even try out a couple of hypotheses. And what you do is that you try and refine and define the problem, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, the second stage is when you then kind of leave all of this to one side. So many people would say they get their best ideas in the shower or like go and sit under an apple tree or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Let's be Newton. Um, but you know, go for a walk. But the idea is that you don't um, tax your brain too much. But the point is that, you know, it, it has something called defocused attention. Whereas before you had a razor sharp, you know, attention. Um, there's even a, an example of a famous chemist called Kekule who dreamt about a snake eating its own tail and then he woke up and was like okay it the benzene ring it, it's a ring <laughs> yeah you yeah. know and what's happening there in this sort of defocused attention thing is your brain is subconsciously carrying on working at uh you know putting together all these different concepts and there have been some neuronal studies which shows that the default mode network is very active here yeah. And what that is, is uh, literally mind wandering and daydreaming. Yeah. And then you get to your eureka light bulb moment, right? Um, and in fact, my supervisor found a brain activity, you know, like related to this insight um, activity where somebody just solved a, a, a riddle, mm. right? And so research shows that the quality of your preparation has an effect on the quality of your incubation, which has an effect on your eureka moment. So it's not good enough to go and sit underneath a tree without having done the work, if that Precisely. makes sense. Good. So, so what you're saying is that not only is this working its way into the neuroscientific conception of things, but it, it, it has been researched and it's been placed in a wider range of processes. So that's great and news. Yeah, and I think the other thing I just wanted to mention is that I think what intuition is, is our perception of something happening very either miraculously or suddenly. Mm. But I think there's a lot of um, processes that are going on under our conscious in the unconscious uh, yeah yeah attentious yeah like sort of subconscious processes and you know another thing could be like intuition feels like a very sort of strong and quick decision making right and something there actually you know you have to think about is how is the heart or even the gut involved in something like that yeah um and there's there is a sixth sense uh you know we we do all know about our five senses and in fact i think we have something closer to 20 or 30 <laughs> senses that have actually been mapped out, including things like proprioception and stuff. Oh my God, but we're going to have a, to do another interview about that one. Yeah, but there's the sixth sense. It's it's called interoception, which literally means your ability to know your internal physiological mechanisms. And so there's this thing where people can actually um, beat out the rate of their heart rate, you know, your, their, their heartbeats to you without taking a pulse. And that has actually been linked, you know, your ability to be interoceptive has been linked to your emotional intelligence. No way. Which is quite interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting because we would have thought in the past that that was all in the realm of the unconscious, all of the sort of internal processes. And making that conscious could, ha could have a value in itself. 
And people say that you're kind of born on a continuum of being able to uh, be high in your interceptive ability or or not. Um, I tend to disagree with that because as a performer, as yourself, I think what we are trained to do is to pay attention to these subconscious things within ourselves Mm. and, you know, really learn to work with what we call now intuition and impulse between ourselves and, you know, our fellow performers, right? Yeah. Um, So I think, you know, this ability to hone your interception get it higher be more aware of it is is where it's all at okay i'm gonna to have to do some research about that i'll come back to you shall we might have to do <laughs> might have to do another sixth sense in fact i've got in mind a, a sixth sense show which uh which i think i'm gonna I, I can't resist doing i want to get um <laughs> i want to get rupert sheldrake on to talk about his oh, uh, his yeah, morphic yeah. morphic fields and his new esp research Anyway, um, Shah, tell us, thank you so much for, for, for clarifying all of this stuff. Um, I know it all sounds very, very technical, but the, the bottom line is is that, <laughs> you know, the implications are that really, you know, our minds just have an extraordinary amount of this stuff going on simultaneously. And to try and just sort of break it down into simple black and white, I think is just a little foolish, isn't it? And maybe I think maybe we didn't have the language or the tools to, um, I suppose, explore them in the scientific way that Absolutely. we are, you know, now accepting as, as, as a way of, of investigating things. Um, and well, I think if you look at complex systems, it's literally about breaking down the component parts of, of a complex system and then seeing how it, you know, emerges into a pattern that we observe, right? Tell us more. What's going on, Shah? You've got such an amazing bag of tools uh, strapped around your, your your belt. You know, where are you going to go next? Like, what's got you at the moment? I'm particularly interested to hear more um, about NeuroCreate. But, but um, you know, what, yeah, what, sure. what should we go and check out? What should the listeners go and, and check on the web? <laughs> Um, well, with NeuroCreate, uh, we've been going for about a year now, and we've created an AI-powered brainstorming tool that can actually give you suggestions, um, just like your sort of little collaborator to help you come up with more interesting and lateral ideas. Surely so that's cheating. Artist well, cheating. No, no, it's augmenting. It's <laughs> augmenting. You know, we've been using tools since, you know, the beginning of the invention of the wheel. So why don't we use AI as another tool? It's Fair not, enough. it's not, you know, replacing Fair us. Enough. The point is, um, it's trying to enhance us. Right. And Absolutely. so if you're interested in something like this, uh, you know, come and check it out. I mean, there's the website, which is www.neurocreate.co.uk. Mm. And Right now, we're also working with some neural data where we're able to classify whether you're in a flow state or not using wearables. And so, yeah, we're trying to look at their, our sort of next stage of development, how we can integrate this into a, a platform that's useful to everybody, you know, um, digitally speaking. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, quite, quite an ordeal. <laughs> and you've got the new album coming out. Yeah, yeah. And um, we actually uh, had an album come out called Truth Be Told, which you uh, quite rightly mentioned. Uh, We've just had a new music video um, released on Thursday the 14th um, on Valentine's Day, because the song is actually about the many sort of faces and phases of love. And we... um, the uh, the link is up is a is a link up to different sort of forms of water in a oh. lyrical sense and also from the audio perspective. Fancy. It's actually an an art film um, in yeah. collaboration with this amazing filmmaker called Claudio Giambuso, and it's all about visual projection. And so yeah, you have to you have to watch it. It's um it's on my YouTube. Um, 
so youtube.com slash the Sharma Rahman. Oh, and it's we'll called, be definitely um, linking all of this in the show notes. So anybody curious about this, do please, please take a look underneath the show and, uh, and all the links will be there. Shama, yeah, I yeah, cannot yeah. I cannot thank you enough, Shama. I know how busy you are and to take time out to help us to understand this this complex uh, field, certainly a lot deeper than the simple term and the sort of fashion of, of emotional intelligence uh, has been very, very illuminating. And now I certainly understand a lot more now. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. And all the best with uh, the new startups and also with the album that's just come out and with this new video. Thank you so much, Shama. Thank you so much. I broke myself into a million pieces And now I know I'll never be the same Choking on the midnight, blacking out the moonlight Cracking through the window with my bloodshot eyes to find the hands that always pull away Ticking off the unseen Clocking in and out of the same old same insane you pray This will last forever More or less or never Always drift away on the single here from Gemma Rogers and Alfie Jackson uh, playing under their new name 2TWO. This is their new single Broken. I broke myself into a million pieces and now I know I'll never be the same. So it's time to speak to the second of our extraordinary guests today, psychiatrist and author Ian McGilchrist. Ian studied English literature at Oxford, after which his fascinations with the human condition brought him to philosophy and psychology. And to understand this better, he felt he had to study medicine uh, before going on to become a practicing psychiatrist. 
He's a former and current fellow of two colleges at Oxford, a former fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and the Royal Society of Arts. He's held positions in psychiatric hospital units spanning neuropsychiatry, epilepsy, children's units, forensic units, and as a research fellow of neuroimaging. So it's safe to say that his perspective on the mind and its perception of the world is incredibly broad, uh, yet specialised, and unites both the arts and science. And he is shot to fame with his book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which brought back into the limelight the idea of differences between the left and right brain, which had all but been abandoned by academics after early split-brain experiments that championed the idea had apparently been proved wrong by ever-improving neuroscientific experiments. His book inspired a fascinating feature film on the subject called The Divided Brain, which will be out shortly, so check the show notes uh, for information about that. And he now lives on the Isle of Skye in my beloved Scotland and continues to write and lecture worldwide. Ian, welcome and thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Oh, it's a great, great pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, thank nice you. On the show. Well, thank you for helping us to understand this this slightly, I think, misunderstood idea of emotional intelligence. But but we'll find out from you because you clearly will know a lot more than us. So the first part of your book talks about the many misconceptions the general public tend to hold regarding the left and right brain separation following these, these early split brain experiments in the 70s. I was stunned by how many of these I thought were true to this day and how hard it was for me to shed even after I'd, I'd read your material. Can you summarize the most common of these misconceptions so we can sort of put to rights the things we've got wrong? Yes. Uh, one of the things that's most striking, in fact, is the idea that emotion is uh, simply a right hemisphere uh, prerogative. Mm. But in fact, both hemispheres are quite emotional. Mm. In fact, one emotion in particular, anger, lateralizes more clearly than any other emotion. And guess what? It lateralizes to the left hemisphere, not to the right. What is true is that the right hemisphere is much, much more emotionally intelligent. Hmm. The left hemisphere is some, somewhat computer-like and incapable of understanding and interpreting human situations. So that was one thing. Another is that uh, the left hemisphere is the only one that, that does reason and language, and that's not true either. The right hemisphere contributes importantly yeah. uh, to both of those. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in fact, language becomes... Uh, again, mechanistic, and, and and most of the subtle meaning is lost unless the right hemisphere is uh, contributing to it. So these general broad outlines that were the key, you know, the left hemisphere, hard-nosed, reliable, down-to-earth, um, you know, a little bit nerdy, and the right hemisphere, this sort of uh, fluffy creative thing. But mm -hmm. in fact, although it's very true that the right hemisphere is much more important for creativity, for emotional intelligence, it's by no means the sort of airy-fairy uh, entity that it was often thought to be. It's in fact our ultimate guide to reality, and that means both everyday reality and the sort of deeper um, metaphysical and spiritual reality. One way of, of putting it is that, um, I, although I resist very strongly the idea that the brain is a computer, it isn't, it's not at all like a computer, uh, the left hemisphere is a little like um, the brain's own private computer. It mm. doesn't really understand what it's dealing with. It, you know, it, you put the data in from real life and you interpret them at the other end when they come out, 
as with the computer. But the left hemisphere is not a good uh, uh, um, guide to reality at all. So the, the old uh, idea about the way in which these two hemispheres relate was wrong. And it had led people even to deny that there were any serious differences because they found all the time that, you know, both hemispheres dealt with everything, which is true. But in that case, why have two hemispheres? Why has evolution persisted with a brain which there only to make connections with a whopping great divide down the middle and that's a very interesting question because it's not just us it goes all the way down the evolutionary tree yeah. and the answer is not about what the two hemispheres do but the way in which they do it it's to do with the manner the how in which they approach each of those things let's say reason language emotion um, uh, visual spatial things they each have a take on it but it's reliably different Mm. You've spent about 20 years uh, looking into this whilst, you know, continuing with your, your practice. And you've concluded that there are, in fact, many important differences, not just some. Um, despite neuroscience's tendency to, to really sort of not touch it with a barge pole anymore because it's a sort of pariah toxic subject. Can you sum summarize where, in <laughs> fact, we can establish differences? Yes. Well, as you rightly say, I was advised by all my colleagues, you know, don't ruin a promising career by going into this area. But the questions just seem to me much too important and interesting. And there are undeniable, large, measurable differences in how they work and even their structure. So that that's, is, and, and you know, I'm a clinician and I know if somebody has a stroke in the left hemisphere or they have a stroke in exactly the same point, in the mirror image place in the right hemisphere, the results will be profoundly different. So nobody can ever tell me that there's not a big difference. Yeah. And evolutionarily, what it seems is that we needed to be able to do two things at the same time. One is to focus on a tiny detail, like picking up a seed against a background of or picking up a twig to build a nest or catching a rabbit or whatever it was. So entirely focused utilitarian attention to something that was going to be useful to us and grabbing it. But at the same time, we had to have a part of the brain that was looking at the whole picture, you know, whether there's a predator hanging overhead, um, whether there's my mate nearby who needs some of this food, just to understand the whole picture. Yeah. So in a sound bite, the left hemisphere helps us grab and manipulate the world, but it doesn't help us understand it at all. The right hemisphere helps us understand it, but it doesn't have that um, focus on tiny things that makes us able to grab them. Yeah. And this means that it, it issues in a whole lot of things because attention is fundamental. And if you attend in a very mechanical picking things apart way, you see, oh, it's all like a machine. Whereas if you look at it as a vibrant, living, dynamic, never fixed and certain whole that has all kinds of social and emotional meaning, you see not a mechanism in the world, not a mechanism in an animal, but instead a living, emotional, spiritual. So there are big differences, and some of them are that for example, the left hemisphere is very keen on certainty. It likes things to be black or white, clear, and um, one thing or the other. It doesn't like ambiguity. It doesn't like subtlety. It doesn't like what's implicit. It doesn't like things like body language, tone of voice, the way in which you alter the meaning of things drastically by the manner in which they're done, for example. 
So the left hemisphere wants things to be close as soon as possible to something fixed and certain and single and separate. Whereas the right hemisphere is all the time seeing that nothing is ever certain, that it's always a matter of possibility and potential, that it's fixed, not fixed, but flowing, that it, it, it can only be understood as a whole, that when you take it apart, you're just left with a handful of bits mm. because none of them on their own mean anything. It's the putting together that makes them mean things. An incomplete picture. An incomplete picture, but not only an incomplete one, but a wholly false one. I mean, for example, an example I sometimes give is, is music. Let's try analysing music. Well, I can inform you that after years of experimental electron microscopy, I've discovered that music is composed of notes. <laughs> and if you take a single, <laughs> you take a single note, what does it mean? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Take another note, nothing at all. Put thirty-five thousand of them together, and you have some piece of music by Bach that is so profound that it completely changes your way of looking at the world. How did that come about? <laughs> so it's it. The putting together of things, it's the forms that matter, mm. not the constituent bits. But our way of thinking, our materialist reductionist thing, is that we'll understand things better if we go down and down more and more into the bits. But actually, if you take everything apart at the end, you've only got a handful of subatomic particles, which won't explain to you at all why you're partner is the person that he or she is absolutely so it seems from your explanation that we're talking about basically two different points of view so all of these different functions of of the mind and of life and and in life itself can be seen through these two different lenses and when they are combined we we get a full picture but if we try and use just one we're not really going to be able to, to, to get a decent understanding of what the world is really like. Even if, it, we, let's say, we were just no, to have a right brain a, approach, that would also be incomplete. That would be incomplete. We need both. It's mm. not that one is right and the other is wrong. Exactly. But it doesn't also mean, interestingly, that they're equally important. Mm. Um, so, if you like, an operating theatre won't function if the cleaner doesn't do a good job, but it certainly won't function if the surgeon doesn't do a good job. <laughs> I see what you mean, but yeah. if you like, the contribution, the contribution to the operation by the surgeon is somehow more essential to it uh, than the cleaner. So mm. it's a bit like that. The left hemisphere is a very useful partner. And it thinks, because it doesn't really know very much, that it knows everything. I mean, the sort of people who don't know very much so they're just the sort of people who think they understand it all the more you actually do understand the less you know and that's like the left hemisphere is the know-it-all but actually only knows little but that little bit is very important and interesting and helpful yeah but the right hemisphere sees the whole picture which is important and mm. the one way i put it across is it's like the difference between a map and the terrain that it maps. Mm. The map is enormously simple compared with the terrain that it maps. And that's not a failure in a map. In fact, it would be a failure in the map if it contained too much. It's much better for being useful and simplified. Yeah. But if you start thinking the map is the terrain, you've made a huge mistake. So it's that sort of a difference. And if I can just sort of sketch to you what 
the kind of key features of each of these worlds um, that our brain is cr creating for us all the time. We don't, we don't think that we're not aware that that's happening because it's happening below consciousness. But all the time, these two halves of our brain are developing two different sort of versions of the world, two different takes on it, if you like. Yeah. And in the one, everything is in its context. If you take it out of its context, it's changed, like explaining a poem or, 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 or explaining a joke. In the right hemisphere, it's all not fixed, but constantly changing, evolving, becoming new. It's also unique. It has to be seen as a whole. A lot of it is implicit. The quality of it matters. And it's an animate world, um, as well as being a very realistic one. Whereas the left hemisphere's world is full of point-like, fixed, separate, isolated, atomistic, little bits that are also somewhat abstract. They've been taken out of context and become theoretical ideas and propositions yeah. um, where the quantities are more important than the qualities. What is explicit is all that matters, uh, whereby you lose most human meaning, by the way. Yeah. It's basically dead, inanimate, yeah. and it encourages a feeling of confidence and optimism that, oh, we understand it all. No problem. Um, people who have right hemisphere damage uh, lose a lot of really important things. One thing that happens, uh, which is of interest to your emotional intelligence things, is that they they don't understand conversation. Um, they don't understand what people are saying because they take things literally. They mm. take them out of context. Yeah. They can't hear the tone. They don't understand irony. They don't understand anything that is implied but, but not actually spoken out loud. Yeah. Um, and often the things we don't say are as important as the things we do say. It doesn't understand relationships in the social world with people. Um, and these people are also completely convinced there is nothing wrong. Um, and that makes them very hard to rehabilitate. People who have a right hemisphere stroke, even though they've, you know, they, they've got um, the use of their right hand, which is controlled by the left hemisphere, and they've got speech, which is controlled mainly by the left hemisphere. They're still very hard to help because basically their understanding of the world has gone to smithereens. Whereas people who have a left hemisphere stroke, they may not be able to speak properly or write, um, and that may be very frustrating for them, but they understand everything very well, and you can communicate with them surprisingly better. Interesting. Um, through through more embodied human meaning. So it's a fascinating area. The left hemisphere is over-optimistic. It doesn't think there can be anything wrong. So while manifestly all sorts of things are wrong, it's saying no problem, yeah. you know, n nothing going on here. It can have a paralyzed limb. And when you try and you know, point out to it that its limb is paralyzed, it will deny that it belongs <laughs> to the person. The person will say, oh, that's not mine. It belongs to the person in the next bed. Or that's your hand, doctor, not mine. You know, that's that bad. Yeah, denial. Anyway. Absolute denial. denial. Let's let's go denial. further down this, this rabbit hole of, of the emotional intelligence aspect. You've, you've started to touch on it, yeah. now, but I'm sure it goes further. We've just had a really fascinating chat with neuroscientist and musician Sharma Rahman. And she confirmed yeah. um, very much similar to what you're just saying, that far more emotion is used in our rational processes than I had thought, and far more analysis is used in our sort of more intuitive and emotional processes than I had thought. Tell us more. What, what other parts do you see emotional intelligence playing in, the, in this difference, in this separation between the left and the right and the brain? 
Well, <laughs> without emotional understanding, you can't actually reason well, as I think you've probably heard from Shama. Yeah. Um, and indeed, without uh, being able to do a certain amount of analysis, um, your intuitions may well be um, off target. Mm. So people who, I always say people who reason well have better intuitions and people who have a better intuitive sense reason better yeah. so they are complementary and to make it a little complicated it doesn't just carve up the left hemisphere is rationalistic and the right hemisphere is intuitive as we heard um, completely misconceived idea yeah yes that the, although I have to say the right hemisphere is much better at its intuitions than the left, but there's no doubt <laughs> there's a huge amount of our ability to reason about things and to distinguish them to um, to make distinctions that are going to be important comes from the left hemisphere. But how are those bits and pieces in our either emotional or logical picture fit together? That is going to be uh, more importantly um, dependent on the right hemisphere. Let's spend some time yes. speaking about the consequences of these differences. You're quite outspoken uh, about your sense that we've relied way too much on this left hemisphere in the development of our current society. Can you describe how that started and how it's played out in the last hundred years or so and how it seems to have sort of snowballed? Is it, is it irreversible? Well, I think there was a huge change um, at the time of the Enlightenment, sort of mid-17th century um, through to the end of the 18th century, in which enormous steps forward were taken by science in being able to find mechanisms which could be interfered in to produce results and in understanding some sequential algorithms that are very important. The trouble was it didn't know what it didn't know. It, it, which is a feature of the left hemisphere. Um, the Enlightenment wasn't aware of the limits to this kind of thinking, powerful as it is. And I always think if I'd been there at the Enlightenment, I would have been you know, the greatest fan of it. It's just that in the last hundred years or so, we've seen the consequences of this kind of thinking. Reductionism. Vast, reductionism in science, vast um, bureaucratic mechanisms in society, um, the triumph of um, uh, abstraction and algorithms and procedures over human judgment, mm. which actually makes most of our lives miserable on a daily basis. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine a lot of your listeners will have jobs in which, um, and they could be librarians or they could be teachers or they could be policemen or, or, or doctors, or it doesn't really matter what, or lawyers. But they will find increasingly that, rather than being allowed to trust their judgment in a situation that comes out of a lot of depth of experience, they will be forced to follow um, a series of steps according to a procedure. And this proceduralization of life is almost bringing things to a standstill. And it's, it's making us blind to certain things because we believe that certain things should be the case in theory we treat the world as though they really are the case in reality. And don't forget, the left hemisphere is very good on having a plan and a theory and a, a kind of map, a very simple schema. But it doesn't actually respond to the complexities of the lived world, which is different from place to place. For example, um, we decide that the way a civilized society works is that it should be 
um, industrialized, democratic, and have all the sort of beliefs that we have, which are actually very peculiar beliefs, the sort of things we think that no reasonable person um, could object to yeah. in 2019, uh, beliefs that at most times, in most parts of the world, people would have thought, frankly, mad. But we go into a completely different part of the world that has a completely different culture and set of values and try and impose ours on them. And then a surprise that they don't like us very much for it Absolutely. and object strongly to this hijack of their culture, this sort of cultural imperialism by the West. Yeah. Um, so it, it's having very important consequences there. Do you think this is linear? Do you think it's... Do you think it's snowballed? Do you think it's echoing about, sort of bouncing about inside its own importance? Do you think it's amplified itself? Or do you think it's just scientific method, that's it? No, I don't think it's just that at all. Um, although I think that a lot of scientists who are not very philosophically inclined just assume, um, because they've been good at finding mechanistic details in very complex systems, that these complex systems, often known as organisms, are just mechanisms, which they're not. And that's why we misunderstand them very badly. Yes. And quite possibly why we're um, wiping out species, doing irreparable damage to the environment, to or what I would prefer to call the natural world, um, to climate and so forth. So these things are important. But you're right, there is a kind of, um, what I call the left hemisphere, the hall of mirrors, yeah. because there's a sort of internal feedback system. Yeah. It has what's called positive feedback, which means that the more of something happens, the more it happens. Whereas in a balanced system, what you want is negative feedback, that if something happens too much, then there is a corrective where it goes back the other way. Now, up to a point when the hemispheres are working well together, this is fine. But the left hemisphere doesn't see the need of the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere sees the need altogether of the left hemisphere. But the left hemisphere doesn't see the need of the right hemisphere. It doesn't see the need to take any note of all that oh, nonsense at school. Why do you need to do history? And why, why do you need to learn about dead people? Why do you need to learn about religion? It's all made up and has no meaning. Why do you need to read literature and do drama and music and things that have no sort of scientific factual basis, but are just mythical? Um, in other words, it's very narrowness, it's stupidity, it's insensitivity, convinces it more and more that it knows everything. And it's very vocal, and it therefore drives out all these other things. And people who have intuitions that all those things that are being driven out are actually very important, yeah. don't have good arguments. They think, oh, well, I suppose they're right, it's just science. I like your Hall of, Im of Mirrors image there, because it seems to me like, a bit like this sort of echo chamber, where... You know, basically, I, I get very frustrated with the sciences for this reductionism because this idea that, oh, well, we can't prove it, therefore it doesn't exist, it seems completely opposite to the whole purpose of science in the first place, which is to discover and it's to learn and, and to come, uh, come into knowing. Absolutely. So this idea of the unknown being untrue. Entirely unscientific. There is nothing whatever wrong with science. There is only something wrong with what's called scientism, which is a bunch of irrational beliefs and the belief amongst others that everything can be understood and sorted out, as it were, in terms of pure science. But the notion that everything must be provable um, is not itself a provable fact. That's well, maybe one day it will. Maybe one day it will, the, but we can't, you know, just because we can't no, no, do no, that now. 
no, 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 no. It can't one day be. It's intrinsically unprovable. Oh, I it's see, an yeah. assumption. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Uh, and also, it is an assumption that, for example, we understand matter. We don't understand matter. The more we know about matter, the more complex it becomes, yes. the more like a mental phenomenon it becomes. So trying to use matter as a primary and saying that consciousness is somehow oozed out of the brain, like urine out of the bladder, is really not a very rational way of thinking. Well, I agree. It's and an I assumption. Wanna, I agree, and I want to come it's back an to that. Mm. That's okay. a big one here. So we'll come back to that in a minute. All right. So emotional intelligence then. Do you see this quite recent trend where emotional intelligence is becoming a buzzword? It's starting to be used in the measurement of people's employability. It's starting to be used to help people, to, to encourage people to understand, you know, the satisfaction they're getting from their life. You know, do you see this uh, as, a, as, as a symbol or as a sign that the awareness raising is slowly redressing the balance? Do you think it's happening on its own? Can we encourage it, or, or will it happen on its own as part of a natural balancing system? It won't necessarily happen on its own, because mm. as I've said, we have a, we're in a positive feedback loop. It's a runaway train. The, the runaway train. The thing, though, that I think gives me hope is that human beings are resourceful, flexible, imaginative, and essentially unpredictable and there must have been points in the past when people thought well it's all up you know yeah. and it wasn't because human beings reacted against it and when i go and talk um the thing that gives me hope is that people of all ages from school age to you know really elderly people respond to the vision that I am proposing. There is something more sophisticated, something that is both more scientifically um, viable and more intelligent and more emotionally intelligent that we need to embrace than this very reductionist materialist world picture, which frankly has had its day. It started out in the 1860s, uh, really full, full steam, when we started creating steam engines. Uh, and it, it's had its day. And in physics, this is very well known. Yes. Unfortunately, biologists take a lot longer to catch up, and they're still talking about mechanisms. And um, what do you think we can do to work. encourage this? I mean, other than obviously, you know, writing books and, and making documentaries and talking about it publicly, what, what, what can we do to encourage it in our daily lives, do you think? Well... Actually, the talking about it and raising consciousness is very important. It's often the first step on getting anyone better, as I know as a psychiatrist. Unless they see the problem, um, they're not going to address it. And I don't want to you know, give people a list of things that they could do, because that would be a very left hemisphere answer. <laughs> oh, I see. As long as I got these six bullet points into my life, then it'll all be fine. Well, we need a complete change of heart and mind. And that will only come from people seeing the deep meaning of this. Yes. Partly we need, in practical terms, to rethink what we have done to education. We, have, we used to have a very good educational system, which was the envy of the world. We now have a system whereby we shovel information into people at the top end and hope that somehow a piece of paper will come out at the back end, yeah. um, which will in, in make them employable and make them intelligent. Absolutely not. This process dulls the mind, dulls creativity. So we need a, a different kind of educational system. We need to rethink that fairly quickly. We need to stop um, 
crippling excellence and sort of trying to make sure that nobody stands out because actually naturally people are enthusiastic and creative and they should be allowed to get get on with it and not and like good teachers it's no good getting a good teacher and then saying you do teaching by this on day wednesday so you follow the four steps in this thing i mean they'll lose the will to live. All the people that inspired me were not being sat on. They were doing all the things that they loved and that love was communicated to me. Mm. And that's what I'm hoping to pass on before I die. So I think that kind of thing is important. I think that, you know, that we're paying more attention to emotional intelligence is good. Although I, I wouldn't wish it to be, as it is quite often understood to mean, um, a sort of emotional self-indulgence becoming a good idea. In fact, we need to be disciplined emotionally as much as we do intellectually. Well, it's one and of the quotients. Of it, it is one of the quotients in Goldman's system, which is good, the one that's now become this Yes, EQ, and it's also an important point in Eastern um, uh, spiritual practices. But that could that also be seen as an agent it. of repression as well. So we've got to sort of be a bit careful about how we how we follow that line. Well, well, that's where Zen comes in, because, there, of course, there is such a thing as Zen, but Zen is constantly proclaiming that there is no such <laughs> thing as Zen. And by doing that, it, man it manages to convey principles without turning them into fixed principles. The great thing is to retain flexibility, to have a degree of structure, but to have flexibility. Too much structure, and it fossilizes. Too little structure and there's simply chaos so we were always doing this on the one hand on the other and one of the things that you know i would really love to get across is that in the world in which we talk about these things people seem to believe simply that certain things are good and other things are bad it is never like that every good thing has its downside every bad thing has its possible virtue and it's really about finding the balance between them not going hell for leather for one all the time or the other exactly so let's really get into the chunk of this i mean your passion and i've got to admit you sound did like a huge fan of the right brain i mean it's extraordinary I'm, i i feel like you've, i know you've really friend. beaten the left brain up in the last 20 minutes but fair enough i understand where you're coming from but but what are the implications of these slightly more positive and beautiful sides that we're seeing you know slowly starting to to come back through from the right brain you know what are the implications for the from the way we understand the material world you mentioned matter what about perception and what about consciousness itself i mean you know you say quite publicly that you believe the mind is the sort of door through which we need to understand the rest of the world what are the implications of the way the right brain works and 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 you know let's think now more about the right brain itself rather than how much it's been dominated by the left brain okay yeah um and i just like to add as a writer to what you said that uh although i have to speak out for the right hemisphere because i think it's virtues <laughs> have been neglected i agree it's not that i think that we don't need a left, we'd all be better if we had a left hemisphere well, stroke. It's we balanced. It's we need balanced. both. People it's often, people, we need a balance. People often say, your work actually is very left hemisphere in some ways. I say, <laughs> fine. I hope I'm using both sides of my brain. <laughs> um, what, what are we, what, it's my second favorite hemisphere, um, <laughs> but we still need it. Um, so we, what, <laughs> what I think is, um, is implied for us is, is a number of things. One, that everything is, as indeed spiritual traditions have always taught, 
connected. We're not atomistic. We're not separate either from one another or from the world, um, which we have the privilege of living in for a while. Mm. It extends in time and space outwards around us. And we are all connected, not in some sort of um, vague way, but in a very real, real way that the substance of the universe, consciousness and matter, have this flowing interconnected structure. Mm. And that means we also need to think about the material world differently. I always say materialists are not people who overvalue matter. They're people who undervalue matter. They don't realize how matter is actually also bound up with consciousness and by individual things. The great multiplicity of, of rich and the cornucopia of created things that come out of the universe and which seem to me, if you like, its whole reason for being. These things are mediated through matter. Mm. Um, all the things that we love, are, you know, what's outside me here as I speak on sky, the mountains, the sea, um, the garden, all these things are, are material. Um, we are material as well as being spiritual. We mustn't lose sight of one. We are what I call amphibious beings. And all matter is. Now, this may sound very kind of um, new agey, but you believe me, uh, I have, you know, the top physicists, the Nobel Prize winning physicists, um, very much speaking the same language. I was going to say. And they've that, been saying it now since the 1920s. Well, I was going yeah. to say, like uh, quantum, Go quantum physics and, and shall we say, a quanta approach, a quantum approach, um, really, it is the paradigm shift that, that it will take to bring the general public onto this, this, this train of thought. I mean, obviously, Buddhism was talking about it you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago with the theory of, um, mm. of de dependent origination, which I found yes. was, was the most brilliant explanation of causation that I'd uh, ever understood. And I it basically agree. And it proves interconnectedness. And hopefully quantum physics, you know, maybe you'll agree here, is, is slowly becoming uh, um, a champion for which, you know, those of us who support this idea in, in the slightly more scientific field and the less new age field could start to build a, a, a narrative and, and start to convince people that, that we can view matter in this way. And more importantly, that we need to see matter as evolving out of that kind of understanding rather than uh, um, all of these other things you've just mentioned being a sort of byproduct of matter. Well, that's right. I see consciousness and matter as evolving together. And in fact, ultimately, again, rather as the left and right hemisphere are both needed, one is primary. The right hemisphere is the one that sort of grounds everything and brings it together at the, the end of the process. Consciousness is the primary thing, and it is the stuff of the universe. And matter is an emanation of consciousness, I believe. I'm arguing that in a book I'm writing now. Can you tell us Not a little that, bit about that argumentation? I mean, um, I mean, what, what's the name of the book, well, it's first a long, of all? What's the name of the book? And when it's can a we long hear book. It? I, when, when well, can we I, 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 my, my favourite uh, my, my favorite, uh, name for it, but I don't know whether my, my publisher's Penguin will agree, is um, The Matter with Things, because <laughs> it's about matter and things and how we see the world as made up of things, primarily. There are all these things... Where did they come from? Like how that. do we connect them? The and I think we're seeing things back to front. What there is is consciousness, and that's all that we know. I mean, I don't know 
that I experience consciousness only because of matter. But I do know that I only experience matter because of consciousness. That I know for certain. So, you know, I think we're looking at things the wrong way around. And if you start to look at them that way around, a whole lot of intractable problems start falling into place. We have to find a way of transcending the realism-idealism divide. Yes. The subjective-objective divide. And they only seem real to us because we have privileged the left hemisphere's view, which cuts things up in this way. Um, if we, so sometimes people might be tempted to think, so is the left hemisphere like the objective one and the right hemisphere the subjective one? And the answer is no. The left hemisphere is the one that thinks that there is subjective and there is objective and puzzles about how the hell they can possibly be connected. Yeah. The right hemisphere sees that subjective and objective are actually one. Yes. There exactly. are different aspects of one thing. They're importantly distinct. When I say one, I don't mean that all the distinctions collapse. The great thing here is to, again, balance division, individuation, uniqueness with togetherness, wholeness, and complexity. You don't want it all collapse into one big glob, and you don't want it all divided up into fragments. You know, sometimes um, deeply um, uh, <coughs> spiritual people say, all is one, man, you know, all is one. And I say, yes, and all is um, a thousand, 10,000 things as well. <laughs> now, how are we going to square that one? Well, so I think it's important to keep those two things together. Absolutely. And that, and, and that is really the key, as you said, is, is the fact that it is both at the same time. And, and that's perhaps where we don't have the language and we don't have the, the tools to, to really describe that and theorize correctly. But tell us a little bit more about this book. We're, we're all out of time, Ian, but we've got to hear about this new book. And, and when, you know, roughly when can we get it? <laughs> roughly when can we get it? Well, well, first of all, I've got to finish writing it. Oh, that <laughs> old chestnut. I've been writing it been writing it now for about 10 years, but I'm hoping to finish it in the next few months. Okay, fantastic. Um, and it will be a comprehensive look at what it is we can take to mean true. Uh, what can we rely on? Mm. Um, a rather important question in current circumstances. Oh, and it's not about, you know, the media and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking philosophically. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what do the two hemispheres tell us about that? What do they tell us about the value of reason of intuition, of imagination, of science. And I think we need all four of those. And if any one of them is missing from your assessment, it means it's not going to be the full ticket. We need all four of those, science, reason, imagination, and intuition. And interestingly, the right and left hemispheres contribute to them slightly differently. Yeah. I'm also going to suggest that in terms of reality testing, in terms of attention given to the world, perception, forming judgments about it, emotional intelligence, and just straightforward IQ, like, you know, cognitive intelligence, the right hemisphere is the more important of the two. Yeah. So what it is telling us, we need to listen to. And in the last part of the book, I'm looking at, don't laugh, space, time, motion, uh, consciousness, matter, and values such as beauty and the sacred. <laughs> I shall certainly not laugh at that. That'll be the, 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 <laughs> my favourite part of the book. So there we are. And I shall be cheering from the from the, the top of the battlements when this when this comes out and, and sharing it left, right and centre. Ian, I cannot thank you enough for your generosity in um, taking time out of your 
your really really busy schedule is your you know this this documentary is coming out and you know, you're trying to wrap up this book for 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 the humble Badger Radio listeners. Um, you've really really helped us understand this, and it's really interesting to place emotional intelligence as a sort of fad, as a new idea within a sort of wider context of just how the the, the brain works and how these two areas of the brain interact so i really really appreciate it i wish you all the best with the release of your of your documentary which i know it's not sort of yours but i know that that you inspired it and also with the the release of your new book and um i really love this idea of of the matter because it's kind of you can play on the what's the matter i kind of like the idea that you could play on that that as well so ian thank you thank you thank you and we must speak again because i'm afraid we've only just started (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well it was a great pleasure and as you say it would be lovely to talk again sometime thank you so much and all the links to your work will be in the notes Let's return to uh, this beautiful sound healing track from Charlie Roscoe's new album, Deep Sound Integration. Thank you, Charlie. Um, We'll just wrap this up and then we can listen to the rest of this tune. What an interesting interview from Ian McGilchrist there. We are so lucky to have been able to interview such a respected author. He's appeared in a film by Bruce Parry and on Chris Evans on Radio 2, just to name a few. So I'm incredibly grateful to him for taking the time out to speak to us on such an underground podcast. That's really, really generous. But what a fascinating pair of interviews in general. I've just learned so much today making this show and um, put to bed so many of my preconceptions and doubts. And I just really hope you guys have been on a similarly interesting journey. It was really interesting to discover just how hard it is to pin down tangible measurable quotients for emotional intelligence and and for me it kind of sums up the whole problem Um, the fact that teaching professionals were so convinced that it was a good idea despite the limited evidence of of you know of concrete change you know that that sort of dichotomy just really sums up these these very very strangely separate things and yet at the same time they seem to be very very intertwined so it was great to have Sharma confirm that, that these emotions really are firing all over the brain in the oldest and most recently evolved parts, uh, as well as in the left and the right hemisphere. It was also fascinating to hear her break down intuition into an integrated process with, with balanced stages, starting with the focused research, followed by the non-focused daydreaming in which the mind is still cogitating, and followed by the all-important eureka moment when it all falls into place. You know, interesting that those three separate parts of the process are strangely all part of the Eureka. Also fascinating to hear a little bit about her research into flow states of concentration and reassuring to hear that those states follow a kind of middle road between the analytic and the intuitive brainwaves, hinting that we're capable of a kind of harmonization of these principles if we're, if we're just given the chance to, to explore it. I also really identified with her view that it seems perhaps quite natural um, that only now as we develop the tools and the conceptual framework to explore more subtle phenomena like emotional intelligence 
but we able to start readdressing this balance and, and I really appreciate her positivity in all of that I think that perspective is very valid given her research and so much to learn from Ian McGilchrist there uh, just just mind-blowing you know about our preconception of the left brain being rational and the right brain being emotional wrong uh, I won't go over it again but, but just so much to use there in the true understanding of this big picture thinking of the right brain. Not least the ability to place all this rich analysis provided by the last 200 years of left brain dominance. You know, now we can place that into a holistic, wider context that applies to the real world rather than remaining in a kind of theoretical disconnect from, from this dynamic, fluid world that we live in. I also felt incredibly reassured that like me, Ian was frustrated with what f for me for years has seen the blatantly unscientific reductionist closed-mindedness uh, uh, of what, what Ian called scientism. And I couldn't help thinking that his work might really help the school of that school of thought to sort of open up to a more subtle, contextual and, and reality-reflecting world of, of scientific exploration. And so regarding this question of how important emotional intelligence really is in redressing the balance in a Western world that really does appear to be dominated by reductionist materialism, I felt a really cold shiver as he warned about the positive feedback loop uh, whereby the more something happens, the more it continues to happen as opposed to a negative feedback loop where if something happens too much it eventually gets pulled back towards balance which seems much more like nature. I think this is chillingly true of where we are at. Um, and yet, despite Ian's admission that this will not happen on its own because of the, f the positive feedback loop, I agree with him that we can be really quite hopeful as humans are ultimately unpredictable. Perhaps because, like nature itself, we have a, 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 a tendency to negative feedback loops built in to, to somehow maintain long-term equilibrium in our, in our being. So in conclusion, I think there really is enough research out there and, and innovative programs being applied to, to slowly lever some of this awareness back into the feedback loop. How fast that will happen perhaps depends on just how we weather the, the next 20 years of, of this extremely exponential digital revolution we're right in the middle of. So quite a lot to keep our eye on there. So thank you, thank you. Thank you so much to today's guests, Ian and Sharma, for sharing their wisdom. Thanks to all of the musicians who've contributed uh, your new tracks to today's show. And thanks, in a way, most of all, to you, our blessed listeners, for making all of this so much fun to produce. Um, if you've got this far, I'm sure you've been stimulated. So please, please do me this favor of sharing the show and, and following the link in the comments under the show and reviewing us on iTunes. It makes such a massive difference. Every one of those uh, reviews just just brings it exponentially to more and more people please contact me uh, on freddy at artfulbadger.org that's freddy with a y double d y at artfulbadger.org if you have any suggestions or questions or queries and i look forward very much to you tuning in next time on totem big love from me and all of us at the artful badger until next time badger